0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV
1: podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon, everyone. <laughs> I'm Professor Ann Taves, and I'd like to welcome you all to this year's Tipton Lecture in Catholic Studies, This year's J.E. and Lillian Byrne Tipton Distinguished Visiting Professor is Thomas Shordash, who is Professor of Anthropology at UC San Diego. Each year we invite a distinguished professor who's done uh, research on Catholicism, to join us for a quarter to teach undergraduates and graduate students, and we invite them to offer this lecture on their research. So let me tell you a little bit about him. Throughout his career, Chordosh has been principally interested in the anthropological study of embodied experience and how our subjective subjectivity, our subjective experience, is transformed through ritual, religious healing, illness, and language. Theoretically, his work is informed by the phenomenology of Merleau-Ponty, as well as by other, a variety of other distinguished thinkers, such as Bourdieu and Foucault. Ethnographically, however, um, most of his research has focused on Catholics, charismatic Catholics, to be precise, and many of the books for which he's best known uh, focus on Catholics, even though as an anthropologist, he doesn't always tell us that in his title. So, for example, his best-known work and the foundation for much that followed is called The Sacred Self, and it's a cultural phenomenology of the Catholic Charismatic Movement. His, one of his next books, Language, Charisma, and Creativity, The Ritual Life of a Religious Movement, is a study of the Catholic Charismatic Movement. Soon after that, body meaning and healing dealt with charismatic Catholics and compared them with Navajo healing practices, so the healing practices in both contexts. Some of his most recent work has focused on globalization, and he's edited both a special edition of a journal and a book on globalization of religion. But here again, it's the Catholic charismatic movement that drew him into this new line of research And it is within that context that he's now exploring the growing interest in exorcism in Catholic circles and especially among charismatic Catholics. He recently received a grant from the Social Science Research Council that's been funding a number of studies on prayer. He wasn't sure when he applied for a grant if exorcism counted as a form of prayer, but it turns out that it does. And with this two-year grant that he's now received, he was uh, enabled to go to Rome week before last to participate in a seminar uh, for priests on exorcism. He had to get permission to go, and he can probably tell you about that. And we deliberately scheduled his Tipton lecture for after he returned so that we could get a full report on his experiences there in Rome. So it's with considerable pleasure, delight, and interest that I introduce Professor Chordash, who will speak on Hammering the Devil with Prayer, the Contemporary Resurgence of Exorcism in the Catholic Church. Tom? (laughs)
0: Thank you very much, Anne. Uh, I would like to thank Professor Anne Taves for uh, inviting me to uh, take the uh, Tipton professorship and, in fact, for uh, renewing the invitation uh, several times until I was finally able, able to, to accept it. I'd also like to uh, thank uh, Professor Jose Cabazon for welcoming me to uh, the department where I'm very happy to be uh, ensconced for this uh, spring quarter. Exorcism from evil spirits in the Roman Catholic Church currently has a more prominent profile in the public sphere than at any time since the Inquisition. I'm currently engaged in in ethnographic research to understand the significance of this development and how it's being played out experientially among exorcists, the afflicted people they aim to help, and the mental health professionals and engaged lay people who assist them. The project has been underway for only six months, so that what I have to say today not only reflects a work in progress, but a preliminary effort to integrate material, some of which, as Anne mentioned, is only two weeks old. What I can say for certain at the outset is that insofar as exorcism is an institutionally sanctioned form of prayer practiced in diverse settings throughout the Catholic world, cultural variation in ritual practice is a central concern of this work. Secondly, insofar as exorcism is a form of prayer concerned with counteracting what is understood as the debilitating force of evil, the contribution of exorcism to virtue, human flourishing spirituality, Moral development and ethical formation is also a central concern. Catholic exorcism is a liturgical prayer in which the aim is relief from affliction due to possession by evil spirits performed by a priest under explicit auspices from a bishop. Granted that I'm not a historian, I think it's important at the outset to at least indicate the importance of examining contemporary exorcism prayer in historical perspective. Demons were not officially defined by the church as spiritual entities until the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 under Pope Innocent III. In the 15th century, exorcism manuals became common and were extensively used in ritual healing prayer to cast out evil spirits. By the time the Malleus Maleficarum, that is the Devil's Hammer, of which my title today is a paraphrase, was published in 1485... The concept of witchcraft was coming to prominence as an idiom of satanic activity among humans, though it never completely replaced the idea of demon possession. A standardized rite of exorcism was officially promulgated in 1614, but the frequency and relevance of exorcism declined during the period from the Enlightenment through contemporary modernity. In 1884, Pope Leo XIII had a vision of Satan after celebrating Mass and composed a special prayer to St. Michael for defeat of the devil. He instituted it as a common inclusion after a low Mass, but its use was discontinued by the Second Vatican Council in 1964. At that point, formal exorcism was among the rituals identified for updating, but the revision process languished. In his 1972 motu proprio document entitled Ministeria Caedum, Pope Paul VI removed the title of exorcist as one of the standard minor orders with which all priests were endowed as a step toward ordination. Not only was this minor order devoid of practical significance by this time, since exorcism already required fully ordained priests with explicit authorization by a bishop, but in the United States in 1972 only one diocese, from what I've heard, had a priest formally appointed to the office of exorcist. In 1994, Pope John Paul II made mention of Leo's St. Michael prayer, but made no move to reinstate it in the liturgy. Also in that year, an international association of exorcists was founded under Italian leadership, and in alternate years, it sponsors an international conference and an Italian conference for the training and spiritual development of exorcists. It was not until 1999 that a revised rite of exorcist was promulgated and recognition of its renewed relevance began to spread slowly among priests and within the hierarchy. In the wake of a Satanism scare in Italy following a series of murders in 1998 and 2004 involving the heavy metal rock band Beasts of Satan... A letter was sent from the Vatican to Catholic diocese instructing that every diocese should appoint an exorcist. And a training course for exorcists was launched at a pontifical university in Rome. This has been conducted annually since 2005, and it was where I was two weeks ago. In 2010, the annual meeting of the Catholic bishops in the United States included a pre-conference explicitly addressed to the topic of exorcism, which attracted 66 priests and 56 bishops. In 2011, a theology course on exorcism was taught in a U.S. seminary for the first time since the Second Vatican Council 50 years earlier. In 2012, an Italian translation appeared of the work Apparitionibus Demonum, originally published by Cardinal Federico Borromeo in 1624. Uh, The cardinal was Archbishop of Milan, and he was the successor to his more famous cousin, uh, Charles Borromeo, who's uh, a saint. Given the evident resurgence, resurgence of interest, however, the practice of exorcism remains unevenly developed globally. And while my current research will be unable to take this fully into account, the comparative approach that I've adopted will allow at least for a preliminary formulation of this issue. Now, the trajectory of this development suggests that exorcism be understood not only as a form of religious practice, but also as a dynamic social phenomenon. I take this observation as central, and it demands explicit attention to the relation between the concrete experiences of social actors and the broader cultural processes and social social forces in which they're embedded Specifically, exorcism prayer can be understood both experientially in terms of the therapeutic process put into play by the practice of ritual healing as an attempt to promote flourishing, and institutionally in terms of the religio-political stance established in the face of global cultural processes in social context. This approach is the basis for two interrelated propositions or hypotheses that form the basis of my current work. First... Exorcism prayer articulates a conservative worldview and a discourse of evil at large in contemporary society framed by processes of globalization, including migration, mobility, missionization, and mediatization. Secondly, exorcism prayer can be genuinely therapeutic if it fulfills all four criteria of the rhetorical model of therapeutic process in ritual healing, Include, including uh, disposition, experience of the sacred, elaboration of alternatives, and actualization of change. I'm addressing the first proposition by identifying the discourse of evil articulated by participants and clerical authorities and its commonalities and dif- differences across cultures within the Catholic world, and the second proposition by eliciting experiential commentary on suffering and life circumstances from participants in specific instances of exorcism prayer. My aim is not, however, to examine these as independent levels of analysis, but to demonstrate that these levels of analysis are intimately and necessarily intertwined. In the present instance, the global discourse undergirds and orients practice, which in turn refines and reinforces the discourse. This two-level approach is becoming increasingly prominent in the anthropology of religion, psychological anthropology and medical anthropology. The tenor of contemporary work is typically more dynamic and dialectical than that common in the mid-20th century, emphasizing the relation or parallelism between personality and culture, the individual and society, or the microsocial and the macrosocial. To be precise, in addition uh To understanding therapeutic process per se, analysis of specific local instances of exorcism prayer is necessary to understand both the response and adaptation to larger cultural processes and the meaning attributed to such processes insofar as they may be perceived to impinge on everyday life. In addition to understanding the religio-political stance of Catholicism per se, Analysis of global cultural processes is necessary to understand the institutional forces and motivations that contribute to shaping the nuances of practice, performance, and experience on the local level as exorcists and the afflicted engage in sessions of prayer. The key symbol that constitutes the empirical linchpin between the experiential and institutional levels of analysis is spiritual warfare— in which each session of exorcism prayer for an afflicted person is a small skirmish, and in which current events on the geopolitical stage bespeak a conflict of cosmological significance. Let's talk first about the processes. Of globalization in the social context of prayer, because this aspect of the research addresses the resurgence of exorcism as a phenomenon that indexes an anxiety and preoccupation with evil in contemporary society. In terms of ideology, the issues are how the distinction between evil as a cosmological force and as a characteristic of persons and their actions is articulated as well as the relation between the stance toward evil on the part of official theology and the popular theology of spiritual warfare. In terms of social practice, this has to do with whether the resurgence is more the result of a a push from the Catholic grassroots or a pull from the Catholic hierarchy. In this respect, the grassroots are constituted by the Catholic Charismatic Renewal Movement, which recognizes evil spirits as a source of affliction and whose members often seek out prayer for exorcism. According to my early interviews, in the United States, it's also been fueled by increasing numbers of Catholic immigrants from Latin America and Africa, specifically from cultures traditionally concerned with afflictions caused by witchcraft and evil spirits. From the side of the hierarchy there appears to be an effort to preempt the global influence of Protestant Pentecostal forms of counteracting demonic forces that can be performed by lay people rather than priests to contain the influence of high-profile Catholic exorcists like former Archbishop Emmanuel Malingo of Zambia, and to account for and perhaps distract attention from global scandal over sexual abuse of young people by priests. This approach on this uh, the, the approach on this level is based on my previous work on religion and globalization taking into account how what is ostensibly a uniform type of healing prayer adapts and becomes transformed as it traverses national and cu- cultural boundaries in the context of political insecurity associated with the decline of nation states material insecurity associated with economic globalization and institutional insecurity associated with events such as the clerical sexual scandal and the demographic shift of membership in the Church to the Southern Hemisphere. This involves understanding the extent to which the current prominence of exorcism prayer and its discourse of evil is a centripetal rhetorical force, further consolidating the influence of the Vatican, or a centrifugal rhetorical force as it adapts and is transformed by local cultural influences. Understanding exorcism in social context requires distinguishing between a focus on religion and globalization, in which globalization is understood in its political-economic sense, and the question is one of relation between analytic domains of the economic and religious, and a focus on the globalization of religion, in which religious phenomena, symbols, ideas, practices, discourses, moods, motivations, spread unidirectionally from center to periphery, bidirectional, uh, bidirectionally between center and periphery, or multidirectionally in a decentered network of influence. It's the latter focus that takes precedence in my approach to exorcism's discourse of evil abroad in the world, and there are four relevant sub-processes of religious globalization. First is missionization, which has varied in epochs, corresponding to the initial spread of world religions, the colonial period, and the post-colonial world, and includes re-evangelization of co-religionists, as well as the quest for new converts. Second is migration of populations, either forced or voluntary, in which people uh, both carry religious practices and predispositions and come into contact with foreign religions in their new locales. Third is the mobility of individuals through personal travel, pilgrimage, or religious tourism that creates exchange of religious ideas or links between like-minded religious communities. And fourth is mediatization that allows accelerated dissemination of religions by means of television, radio, print cassettes, and compact discs. So missionization, migration, mobility, and mediatization The four M's, I've always been a sucker for alliteration. Based on my preliminary research, the religio-political stance and associated politics of spirituality appears to have several dimensions in our case at hand. First, the exorcism rite promulgated in the Roman ritual of 1614 was revised in 1998, but both versions are still in use, and a degree of controversy exists insofar as some groups of traditionalist Catholics object that the new version dilutes the force of the prayer and the seriousness with which it takes the demonic. This tension has only very recently been mediated by a 2011 letter from Father Francesco Bamonte, current president of the International Association of Exorcists, to Cardinal Levada, which has resulted in permission for exorcists to use either form. Second, exorcism exists in tension with deliverance prayer as practiced among lay members of the Catholic Charismatic Renewal in cases deemed to be of a severity less than full-scale demonic possession, and in relation to exorcism practiced by Protestant Christians and in other religions including Islam and Hinduism. This tension is in part alleviated by recognition by exorcists themselves of deliverance as a form of prayer of liberation, distinct from exorcism, while disagreement exists over the legitimacy of imposition of hands as an informal rather than a liturgical gesture. Third, there's a sense of urgency that demonic affliction and dangerous involvement with the occult is increasing in contemporary society. This is associated with an overall decline in faith and a relativism that are understood to create a spiritual lacuna and lack of moral direction thus constituting an opening for demonic influence. The situation is exacerbated by failure to take the danger seriously. A failure evident in lack of awareness on the part of priests of the needs of their parishioners due to lack of training on the subject in seminaries. Worse, the absence of exorcists in many dioceses is attributed to the non belief in evil and exorcism on the part of many bishops. In the context of citing biblical passage passages about exorcisms performed by Jesus and papal statements about the reality of the devil, one hears the challenging statement that if one does not believe in the devil, one might as well not believe in the resurrection. The annual course on Exorcism and Prayers of Liberation, co-sponsored by the Grupo de Ricerca e Informazione Socioreligiosa, or GRIS, located in Bologna, and the Legionaries of Christ, is a major attempt to remedy this lack. In 2013, the course attracted 163 participants from 25 countries, and as Anne mentioned, I was one of those, The most well-represented countries being Italy with 51 people, the Philippines with 14, Mexico with 12, Spain with 11, the United States with 11, Great Britain including Scotland with 10, and Colombia with 8. Fourth, and this is something that I find really um, uh, fascinating and problematic as well methodologically, There are two critical conceptual boundaries that appear to establish the epistemological limits of exorcism practice and the consequences of which must therefore be explicated ethnographically. One is the boundary between psychiatry and religion, which somewhat ironically is rendered virtually impenetrable precisely by the church's complete acceptance of psychiatry. That is, mental illness must be professionally ruled out prior to recognizing a problem as due to demonic affliction. And therefore, by definition, the standard formulation of ethnopsychiatry that recognizes psychotherapy and religious healing as equivalent or alternative ways of addressing affliction cannot be applied within the logic of the system. That is, our standard academic move. Um, of applying the psychotherapy analogy well of course the medicine man of course the chanter of course the shaman is very much like the psychotherapist except adapted to their their own culture that analogy doesn't apply purely if you have a situation in which psychiatry and psychotherapy are themselves accepted and then the religious practice of healing is distinguished as something quite different The other epistemological boundary uh, is that between the Abrahamic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and all non-Abrahamic religions, including all forms of shamanism and polytheism. While the Abrahamic religions are understood to share a conception of demonic evil, in a stance reminiscent of the period of European colonial conquest, the spirits and deities of other traditions are invariably and irredeemably, and I use that um, word um, pointedly, irredeemably understood to be aspects of demonic evil themselves. Now, moving on to the to the therapeutic process um, level of analysis that I'm um, trying to elaborate. Uh, This aspect of the work addresses the concrete experience of participants in exorcism as a form of ritual healing, including exorcists, those who assist them, and those who seek their help. Catholic exorcists must be ordained priests, but some are diocesan priests while others are members of religious orders, and it's necessary to determine how these different backgrounds affect their work. Also relevant are the qualifications and selection process of exorcists and the nature of their training, as well as those of mental health professionals who advise on whether a person is afflicted by a psychiatric disorder rather than by an evil spirit, and who often assist in the prayer uh, sessions. Um, This issue of the selection process of exorcists is is relevant. For example, um, uh, one of the things that I was was asking um, priests that I met in this Rome conference uh, two weeks ago is whether they were sent there by their bishop in order to get ready to take on the role of official diocesan exorcist, or whether they were coming of their own interest to find out what the, what the circumstances were uh, of, of exorcism. And it was, it was mixed among those, uh, among those people. Um, people who determined to be under demonic influence also have specific characteristics with respect to their life history, spiritual background, and mental health status. Insofar as our current notion of human flourishing is traceable to the concept of eudaimonia as used by Aristotle and the Stoics, in the present context, the relation between daemon and demon cannot go unremarked. Anthropology has a rich tradition of addressing similar concerns in the cross-cultural literature on ritual healing. Catholic exorcism fits this category precisely insofar as it's intended not only to have the negative function of removing the debilitating effect of evil in the form of demonic affliction as an impediment to flourishing, but also the positive function of restoring a life of prayer and spirituality as the basis for flourishing. Critical to this understanding, undertaking is identifying variation in the cultural patterning of self and emotion, in terms of which both affliction and flourishing can be recognized and defined. This approach is based on the rhetorical model of therapeutic process I developed in earlier work on religious healing and refined during my work on Catholic charismatic healing and Navajo healing. The model is based on an interpretive analysis of modulations of meaning and experience in the healing process and includes four components. First is disposition of the afflicted, both in the psychological sense of their prevailing mood or tendency for engagement in ritual performance, and in the physical sense of how they're disposed vis-a-vis the social networks and symbolic resources of the religious community. Second is experience of the sacred, taking into account the religious formulation of the human condition in relation to the divine, the repertoire of ritual elements that constitute legitimate manifestations of divine power, and variations in individual capacities for experience of the sacred that may influence the course of therapeutic process. Third is the elaboration of alternatives or negotiation of possibilities that exist within the assumptive world of the afflicted. Healing systems may formulate these alternatives in terms of a variety of metaphors and may use ritual or pragmatic means that encourage either activity or passivity, but the possibilities must be perceived as real and realistic. And fourth is the actualization of change, including what counts as change, as well as the degree to which that change is regarded as significant by participants. This may occur in incremental and open-ended fashion without definitive outcome, or without overt miracles. My research so far indicates several issues that must figure in this analysis. First, the significance of exorcism prayer is not limited to the duration of its utterance, but transcends the boundaries of the event, insofar as it intervenes in an individual's life trajectory and occurs in a specific social milieu, including a variety of actors. Second, although the formal exorcism prayer is published in a standard format, it includes a critical dimension of performativity. Specifically, although there's an established liturgical form for the prayer, the exorcist can improvise according to the severity of demonic influence and the particular needs of the afflicted person. He can include more or fewer of the full repertoire of prayers, Choose between deprecatory prayer in which God is asked to intervene against the demon and imprecatory prayer in which the demon is commanded to depart or reveal itself by the exorcist in the name of God, and especially significant with respect to an ethnographic study, can introduce variations suited to the cultural milieu. Third, exorcism must be understood in relation to several related types of prayer, including earlier forms. Of exorcism itself and the circumstances under which revision was made. Second, as we've already mentioned, deliverance from evil spirits, a related but non liturgical prayer common in the charismatic renewal movement. Uh, third, prayers for spiritual protection prior to and following exorcism proper on the part of both officiating priest and afflicted person. And fourth, prayer is conducted on a daily basis by the afflicted as intended to promote spiritual growth and a virtuous life free from satanic influence. In this sense, exorcism is not an isolated genre of prayer, but part of a performative constellation of interacting types of prayer. Indeed, from the standpoint of the the afflicted, one of the foremost effects of demonic influence is the inability to pray. While popular p- representations emphasize the possessed person's tendency to vehement blasphemy and the exorcist's equally vehement demand that the de- demon acknowledge subordination to the deity by pronouncing the divine name, in an important respect, exorcism is a form of prayer intended to restore an ability to pray. Subsequently, the, developmently, de- the development of a consistent prayer life that creates a deepening relationship with the deity is understood as critical protection against succumbing again to the demonic. Likewise, from the standpoint of the priest, understanding exorcism requires attention to the practitioner's prayer life, including prayer and in preparation for the confrontation with evil, prayer for protecting from its influence having been exposed, and prayer for continued spiritual growth and strengthening. It's critical to an ethnographic account that there are recognized degrees of demonic affliction within a distinction between ordinary and extraordinary action of the devil. The prime instance of ordinary action is temptation, while extraordinary action can take the form of manifestations that even one of the practicing exorcists said can be Hollywood-esque. Violent aversion to the sacred, extra-human strength, knowledge of the future or past, command of a language unfamiliar to the afflicted person, alterations of vocal tone are among these. What I'll emphasize here, though, is the manner in which the exorcist focuses his attention on the phenomenological field of everyday life to determine how and whether the evil spirit has gained a purchase on the life of the afflicted. And here I'm going to paraphrase a priest with extensive experience as an exorcist who enumerated what must be attended to. And bear with me, because this is a long passage, um, but its uh, effect, I hope, will be um, uh, cumulative. The exorcist has to determine whether there are specific episodes in a person's life, including exposure to occult practices, whether voluntarily or involuntarily. Based on case studies, we ascertain that ways that open the road for the devil are participating or being present at seances, spending time with tarot, chiromancy, mediums, extrasensory perception, amulets if received from wizards, consecrating them to spirits with specific rituals, objects bought as souvenirs of travel that are cursed, being present at ceremonies as a tourist, practices like transcendental meditation and reiki, so-called magic communities, cult groups or associations practicing initiation to esotericism, listening to music with a message that invites to necrophilia, Satanism, homicide, suicide, blood rites, Eucharistic thefts, which are in exponential increase, black masses with satanic rites, with profaning of sacrament and sexual orgies, orgies and ritual homicide. But there are other causes not connected to occult activity, like unconfessed grave sins or injustices, hate or rejecting forgiveness, disordered and perverse acts, especially attacking children or the Holy Spirit. Also, sexual violence, especially father on daughter or children and adolescents. Not all of the abused are subject to the extraordinary action of the devil, but many cases are associated with these moral wounds of sexual violence. We don't know the mechanism, but it allows for the extraordinary action of the devil. Fathers have a beneficent effect of blessing greater than mothers, so father's abuse is more harmful. This is a hypothesis, said the priest. Listen to the person and analyze their relation to God. Do they pray? How often? How much? Have they left something unsaid in confession, like an abortion? Do they attend sacraments in the Mass? How their problems develop over time, and what changed in the behavior over time, whether the manifestation is continuous or discontinuous, whether it appears and disappears suddenly, whether it alternates randomly or appears always in the same circumstances related to place, like in or out of the home or in church. If there is violence, in what situations is it manifest or accentuated? Did it begin after a particular event? If yes, the person must describe the practices involved. What remedies have been used, such as doctors or psychiatrists? And do those specialists themselves have causal explanations? Have they gone from doctor to doctor, and why have they done so? Have they tried other healings like occult healings or alternative religious movements and oracles or teachings specifically applied to that person? Were family members living or alive involved anyhow? Have they manifest knowledge of unknown things or languages or knowledge of an event at a distance or in the future? Have they forgotten manifestations that have occurred to them or remembered only parts of them? Have they exhibited strength beyond their age or gender? Have they experienced reactions interior and exterior to the sacred? And I read that about as fast as, as the priest who was reading it. And this comes from the, the conference that I was just at. Um, one of the distinguished priests was um, was was talking and, and telling us you know, what needs to be Um, uh, uh, looked for. Um, And this um, searchlight scrutiny on the person's life uh, was described as a kind of discernment based on listening. But the sense in this priest's uh, discourse um, of, of an urgency to leave no stone unturned suggests the necessity of interrogation across these categories that could potentially reach an inquisitorial intensity. The dilemma faced by the exorcist is not whether the person is in distress and in need of help, which is invariably the case. The problem is, for the exorcist, that while it can be determined with some confidence that no extraordinary demonic activity or manifestation is present, it can also be the case that a demon is hiding, and the hidden demons are often the most powerful. As I indicated earlier, the real distress experienced by those who seek the help of exorcists is not only assessed in terms of the presence or absence of demonic activity, but also in terms of the presence or absence of mental illness. Psychiatrists and psychologists who are also both practicing Catholics and convinced in the ontological reality of evil spirits, because the two don't necessarily go together in all cases, consult and assist exorcists. Now, to give you a sense of what this means in practice, I'll recount three vignettes offered by a Spanish psychiatrist, one of a case he ascribed to mental illness, one to demonic possession, and a third which had, at the time of his telling, yet to be determined. First instance. A 36-year-old female with Down syndrome went through 50 sessions of exorcism without any result until the priest finally called his psychiatric consultant. The um, psychiatrist diagnosed paraphrenia with religious delusions, despite the presence of typical demonic man- manifestations, including altered voice, agitated words in another language, inordinate strength and a lot of religious content. The woman's father was dead, and her schoolteacher mother was very religious, and along with a close friend, was involved in a group focused on religious visions of the Virgin Mary. The mother, daughter, and friend lived together in a cramped two-room flat where the priest and psychiatrist visited to find every inch of the walls covered in religious images. The afflicted woman was wearing numerous religious medallions and a prayer around her neck with a religious medal taped to her forehead, and her mother indicated that her demonic episodes always started at six in the evenings. When asked about her situation, the woman went wild, and in trying to pacify her, the doctor observed her mouth was very dry and that, in fact, she was seriously dehydrated. She quickly drank two glasses of orange juice and ate some food, since she had also gone without eating for 15 days. She soon became agitated again with a changed voice, but the doctor again pacified her. After four rounds of agitation and pacification, the doctor realized he could start and stop the manifestations and the priest began to be skeptical, and the mother became annoyed. The doctor prescribed a one-week course of anxiolytic drugs and sleeping pills, instructed the mother and daughter to move out of the cramped flat, and for the daughter to wear only one religious medal. The mother obeyed but was skeptical, for in fact she was a party to the religious delusions herself, and apparently aware that demons are said to sometimes attack those who are especially saintly and wishing, perhaps, that her daughter would prove to be such a person. After a year of psychiatric management, the afflicted woman was back to being, and I quote the psychiatrist, a normal person with Down syndrome. Okay? That is, no demonic affliction and no mental illness. Second case, a 60-year-old woman understood as legitimately possessed... She exhibited eight to ten of the classic symptoms of possession. She was stronger than her age or gender warranted, with four people needed to restrain her, with voice and face changed, eyes rolled back and white, vomiting a strange green liquid, speaking an ancient language, having a strong negative reaction to holy water, the cross, and the priest's stole. Her first session lasted an hour and a half, and she remembered nothing afterward when she resumed a pleasant facial expression. She had attended Mass and taken communion before the exorcism session, which began after others had left the church. Other participants in the Mass, that is. The devil then threw her to the floor where protective cushions had already been placed. The doctor noted that she was normal both before and after the exorcism session. In this instance, the afflicted person had come through the charismatic renewal looking for a priest to help her. She had a long history of experience with witchcraft or brujería, specifically in that when her mother was pregnant, another woman did something to her, that is, cursed her, as well as with um, voodoo. An electroencephalograph identified a small epileptic focus, which, however, was not active and was effectively controlled with anticonvulsant medication a hand tremor disappearing with a low dose of this medication. The doctor noted that the occult exposure um, and therefore exposure to to the demonic was all through her mother and not through activity of her own. And later, both within exorcism sessions and outside them, she began to remember experiences she had as a little girl. In the past three to four months, she had continued prayers for deliverance with a priest but not formal exorcism. That is, um, a prayer at a lesser degree of uh, intensity. And this was a case that was deemed by the psychiatrist and his priest um, colleagues to be one of actual uh, possession. The third case, the indeterminate one, was an ongoing case of a 26 year old woman from Romania. And it was creating some perplexity for the doctor and the two priests with whom he worked. Since age 16, this young, girl, uh, young woman had been diagnosed with schizophrenia first in Romania, then in Spain. She was under treatment with neuroleptic drugs and spent Mondays through Fridays in a day hospital. Her parents were both pediatricians, and her father had died in a car accident. Her mother's grandmother had been involved in a form of traditional healing in Romania, and her mother was convinced she was possessed despite being a physician herself, the mother being a pediatrician. Over the past several years, the situation of this young woman had improved, but then a dramatic change came about when the young woman began to experience episodes of intense pain in her hands and feet. Curiously, although she was rendered bedridden for three to four weeks, during this period, her psychotic symptoms disappeared. Just a week before narrating this case, the doctor went to her home because another such episode of pain had occurred, and she was bedridden. Despite the fact that he had recently seen her with what he described as a typical psychotic smile, on this occasion her face was normal expect, except for the expression of physical pain and with no other apparent psychotic symptoms. He tested where the pain was by touching her hands and feet and determined that the greatest sensitivity was in the palms of her hands. In such a case, he had to entertain the possibility that she was a stigmatic or that there could be a religious aspect, or that evil could be involved. One of the collaborating priests observed that the young woman herself had been involved in some unsuccessful love magic to attract boys, and that her mother had at some point consulted a folk healer for diagnosis. What most perplexed the doctor was that, from his uh, experience, true schizophrenia never remits, so that the episodes when pain replaced psychosis could indicate that schizophrenia was not and never had been the correct diagnosis. This possibility is, was reinforced by her mother's report that the young woman was not responding to her neuroleptic medication. If this was the case, however, it opened a possibility that the demonic symptoms were produced by, or that the um, that the symptoms were produced by demonic mimicry of psychopathology. Likewise. The pain episodes could be a product of hysteria, could be caused by a demon, or be authentic divinely induced stigmata. The complexity and perplexity of this situation was palpable, insofar as the boundaries between spiritual and psychiatric, divine and demonic, were at least for the moment inscrutably indeterminate. Given these considerations, the work that I'm doing focuses on a comparison of exorcism in the United States and Italy. Italy is the center of the Catholic world, and the United States is home of a globally influential Catholic community with vivid social and cultural contrasts between them. In the United States, as of 2005, there were 69.1 million Catholics, constituting 23% of the total population of 300 million belonging to 18,992 parishes in a total of 194 dioceses. In Italy, at the same time, there were 55.76 million baptized Catholics, constituting 97% of the total population of 57.48 million, belonging to 25,702 parishes in a total of 228 dioceses. Whereas my preliminary research indicates that in the United States there are currently approximately 60 active exorcists in dioceses, in Italy there are estimated to be slightly more than 200, such that whereas a small proportion of U.S. dioceses have officially appointed exorcists, some Italian dioceses have more than one. As of this year, for example, the Archdiocese of Milan has 12 exorcists. A comparative approach is all the more called for, insofar as the Catholic Church is a transnational institution about which it would be impossible to generalize without taking account of cultural differences across the Catholic world. And also, American priests tend to receive exorcism training and apprenticeship in Italy and subsequently adapt the knowledge to their home locales. This comparative approach also corresponds with the recognition within anthropology of the need for multi-site research on social phenomena of global scope, as well as on the relation between national identity and religious life. There is a number of contrasts relevant to my central um, propositions. In Italy, Catholicism is the prevailing religion, but has a substantial degree of internal pluralism, while in the U.S., Catholicism is a minority religion, in a religiously plural nation. Catholicism provides a generalized symbolic code across political and regional diversity in Italy, while in the U.S., national identity provides a generalized symbolic code across religious and social diversity. And the relation between church and state is correspondingly different, along with conceptions of the church as a bastion against evil, godlessness, and secularism in the world. In Italy, Catholicism is prominent in the public sphere, whereas it is significantly less so in the relatively more secular U.S., such that, for example, the recent intervention by American Catholic bishops in the controversy about medical insurance coverage for birth control appeared rather odd and unusual. Patterns of immigration differ, such that my interviews so far indicate that American exorcists connect the rise and the need for exorcism with the increased presence of Hispanic and African groups who who bring belief in evil spirits and perhaps the spirits themselves from their home countries, while Italy is sustaining increased immigration from North Africa, such that Islam is now the second largest religion in that country. This has potential interest in the degree to which Islam may or may not be invested with demonic characteristics in the two countries. Whereas in Italy, there's an enduring stratum of folk Catholicism, including pilgrimage, devotion to local saints and the Virgin Mary, beliefs and curses, witchcraft and evil eye, relatively speaking, it can be said that there has been somewhat of a Protestantization of Catholicism in America This circumstance, along with differences in the cultural patterning of self and emotion associated with differing parent-child and extended family relations, can be expected to lead to relevant difference in typical forms of distress and expressivity. Characteristic differences in gender relations between the two countries must be an important site of comparison, though the pattern of male priests exercising a predominance of afflicted females is a pattern that has remained intact since the Inquisition and witchcraft persecutions. A final cultural contrast is the relative role of popular media, with the U.S. being the source of a near-constant stream of movies and television reports about exorcism and widely publicized scandals about satanic abuse that relate to a broader horror genre. Across these um, differences, there are let 's see I guess I should wrap up it 's about time, right yeah um, there 's a, a series of of, of thresholds um, that we are uh, that uh, may be transcended um, uh, and I think i 'm going to um, skip over those they 're a little bit dry. Um, these are experiential um, and practical um, thresholds. But I'm going to um, um, give you a, a final um, anecdote or two uh, to, to give you the, the sense of, uh, of the, difference, the differences in um, phenomenological worlds, shall we say. Um, this is an encounter between an exorcist and, and a psychiatrist, taken from um, a book called "Exorcisti e Psychiatri, (Exorcists and Psychiatrists), written by um, Father Gabriel Amorth, um, who is um, a very, uh, maybe the most prominent exorcist in the world, um, the, the official exorcist, one of the official exorcists of the Diocese of Rome. He says. One day, Father Candido, who is a friend of his, was exercising a young girl who was a student at the university, who presented certain symptoms of diabolic possession, but also signs of, disequilib- of psychic disequilibrium. Father Candido called on the help of a psychiatrist friend of his, and he gave the details of the case and set up a meeting the psychiatrist had a large writing table on which um, uh, the, the young girl was uh, seated on the other side of, finding uh, herself uh, substantially distant from the doctor. At the conclusion of the um, meeting, the psychiatrist said, Signorina, take this medicine, and began to write on the prescription pad that he held in his hand. At this moment, a strange occurrence took place. Without moving from her seat, the young girl stretched out her arm, which became long, long, before the, before the dismayed eyes of the psychiatrist. Almost two meters, he said later. Grabbing the first page of the prescription pad, on which the doctor was writing, she tore it off and threw it in the wastebasket, saying in a grave voice, This stuff is no use to me. <laughs> Father Candido laughed with gusto as he narrated the fright with which his friend, in the aftermath Did not want to learn anything more about this young woman nor about any other patient of the exorcist. Now, here's an encounter between a psychiatrist and um, an exorcist, told from the standpoint of the exorcist, and um, basically taking the advantage to um, make fun of the psychiatrist um, with the example of a demonic manifestation the arm stretching out to the length of two two meters. Now, what's of import and what's of interest about this is not the question of whether her arm really stretched out uh, to the length of two meters. Um, What's important is that there is a mode of attending to um, one's body and the bodies of other people, and Um, attributing meaning of a certain sort, um, interpreting um, experiences in such a way that it indicates a culturally elaborated um, somatic mode of attention. That is, a way of attending to and with one's body to um, allow the elaboration of a certain kind of meaning um, for a particular um, um, purpose, in this case, a particular kind of rhetorical purpose. Um, and one final anecdote um, illustrating a a threshold of what we can call ontological incommensurability and this comes from the um, course on exorcism that I attended two weeks ago a number of us stayed at a guest house operated by an order of nuns and during the middle of one night a yowling broke out on the grounds sounding like a cat or a bird undergoing a violent death. Having heard the hooting of an owl on previous nights um, and having had the experience um, myself of losing a a cat to this bird of prey, an owl, my interpretation was that such an episode had just transpired. Aha, I know what's going on. An owl is is capturing a prey. On mentioning this occurrence the next day to a priest participating in the course, I learned that from his standpoint, having had the experience of ritual attack on a monastery in his home region, his interpretation was that local Satanists were fully aware that an exorcism course was being taught in this locale and that they had perpetrated a ritually aggressive animal sacrifice on the guest house grounds. Appearing To me at that moment was the vividness of the untraversable threshold between phenomenological worlds that nevertheless are superimposed on the same existential space and are mutually visible from different ontological dimensions. Such are the moments that make certain people into anthropologists and keep them that way.